I'm Austin, and this is Validated. During NFT NYC last month, I got together with my Solana Foundation colleagues, Amira Valiani, head of policy, and Pedro Miranda, who works on NFT technology, for a live taping of Validated. It was a fun chat that, unlike our regular episodes on this podcast, spontaneously jumped from one big topic to the next. We've excerpted three highlights from the conversation for this episode. First, we'll talk about how mental models around Web3 partnerships are starting to evolve. As Pedro puts it, the future of Web3 adoption is probably not a branded 10k NFT drop on OpenSea. Next, we move on to TradFi and its institutional inefficiencies. This might sound like the most vanilla crypto conversation ever, but before joining the crypto space, Pedro actually worked at Silicon Valley Bank, and his experience there is a firsthand testament to an archaic system in need of a technological, maybe blockchain-based, renovation. From there, we get into the pros and cons of CBDC, central bank digital currency projects. Lastly, we chat about the disconnect between crypto conversations on Twitter versus crypto conversations on the Hill. Amira calls crypto a Rorschach test for how you want to see the world, which I think is pretty spot on. It's easy to turn crypto into fodder for political warfare, and in doing so, we all may miss out on the transformative potential this technology has to offer. If you enjoy this more informal chat episode, let us know at validated at solana.org. We may do some more of them. All right, let's get into it. I want to talk about what makes a good Web3 partner. There's a school of thought that is about sort of building partnerships with really big brands out there, maybe like the Reds of the world or like the Zaras of the world or, you know, Nike or so have you. And then there's a school of thought, which is like Web2 companies, who needs to work with them? Like first we have to prove what Web3 is good for. And we need to work with Web3 native brands before sort of going for the big dogs or forget the big dogs, like they're old school anyway. And I think this is a, it's an interesting tension, right? Like I think there's like some really interesting questions around how blockchain develops as an industry and whether or not it makes sense to try to strike these partnerships with bigger brands. So, you know, Pedro, I feel like you have a lot of thoughts here. You're smiling yes. in a very uh, mischievous way. Yes, uh, yes. So, like, what do you think? What makes a good Web3 partner? Yeah. Sh- should Web3 brands be going after big partners? So, yeah, from the from the NFT team perspective, on the business development side, we we think about this, we debate extensively internally from various sides. In terms of the Web2 partners, I think there is an element that you have to pursue or my team does engage in these conversations from the social proof perspective, right? The what do you mean by that? Social proof as in someone who has no no knowledge of of Solana goes on goes on their website and sees that they're building on the Solana network and that is like hey, this is legitimate and then increases the positive perception that they have with Solana. That's the definition of social proof. We could debate if you know social proof is is productive and is is worth spending time with these partners. But to me, the value of these Web2 partners is the social proof. If you actually look at any on-chain analytics, no Web2 partnership in Web3 has produced an increase in on-chain, a meaningful increase in on-chain transactions, you know, on-chain usage and and retention recurring on-chain users. Right. So from an analytics like perspective, we, we had a couple years to, to test this out, like full stop. That is the objective truth. In terms of Web3 crypto native teams, I would say that's where we spend 80% of our time. Right. For Grizzlython, for example, Underdog Protocol won the grand prize. And they are they're working on dynamic NFTs at scale and you know, Web3 cookies, essentially. We want to be working with teams who are you know, working on the concept of ownership, composability and working on whatever can be put on chain for essentially like the better good of you know the, the web3 ecosystem. But when you're coaching those teams and talking to them about getting adoption for their product, at some point they've got to start selling that to someone who's not web3 native, right? Otherwise it's just the same whatever, yeah. few million people, few thousand people selling to the same people, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting. We see two different camps, two different routes of this. We have teams who want to keep their their crypto native language and essentially say hey we we're going to bring you guys all on chain we have this product that can only work as nfts and is very you know crypto native heavy i would say 
And then the other side is crypto native teams who are essentially saying, we're going to kind of cleanse the NFT language. And we're going to just say, you know, call it digital assets, for example, right? You can have the benefits of blockchain technology while kind of abstracting it away to these Web2 partners, for example. So that's like an internal debate for how we are trying to position these teams in terms of when they go to these Web2 partners, say it's a large sneaker provider, right? When they're trying to build a loyalty program, do they essentially go to them and say, hey, this is going to be all on chain. You're going to have all the benefits of like all these crypto power users. Or do they go the route of saying, hey, like you're going to be using a blockchain, but you don't need to know anything about crypto. What do you think? I think it's it's a spectrum, <laughs> not a binary choice. We're seeing with a lot of these products that are trying to simplify Web3 primitives, you take away composability, you take away ownership. And I think that's very dangerous. I still think self-custody, for example, is a really important part of Web3 in terms of the benefits that it adds. There's a lot of products out there that essentially they kind of hide the self-custody aspect. So I still think we need to spend a lot of time if we are going to try to sell crypto products to Web2 brands to essentially teach them on why these on-chain components are so important, why you need to sign transactions and whatnot. And that's the educational part that takes a lot of time and you know, it takes a couple of few hour strategy sessions. Do you think we're ready for the social proof? Well, I guess two things. Is social proof meaningfully real? And if so, are we ready for it? So for the first one, I feel like social proof is something that you hear a lot of like C-grade Web2 companies talking about, right? Where it's like, it's like we've all been to that like generic SaaS company's website where it's like used by designers at Apple and Figma and Twitter and like all these. And like, I'm sure one person with an Apple.com email address demoed their product once and like maybe pays for it. But like it's not used by Apple, right? But they, the the way that they're sort of showing it on their website is if it was like a corporate license that like Apple has for something. And I've always kind of wondered that like there's some part of social proof that is like cool and interesting and like maybe valuable. But the people who are most valuable to be building on Solana shouldn't be convinced by the fact that like ASICs did a really cool shoe drop using USDC on Solana. Yeah. Like they should be able to just like look at the technology, do the work themselves and be like, oh, we're real engineers at a real company. Like, we're not going to take the word of another company to say this is interesting. Yes, I agree. Social proof is about users. Interesting. Okay, so you don't think it's at all on the B2B side. It's entirely B2C. Yes, that's my opinion. We're getting some spice. My brother's in the audience and he's he's like the classic example. I was looking at him as I was developing this thought. (laughs) as someone that is influenced, like many people, like most people in this world, by logos on a website. So when you were saying a SaaS company that is used, that was considered by Apple, right? There are most people, it is my thesis that most people are convinced by that. Users, users trying to make a transaction. Social proof is like actually a useful thing, right? Because we can't all evaluate everything all the time, right? There's just too many choices for a human being to make. And so there is an element of social proof that's actually useful, right? Because if, if you, Austin, tell me like, oh, hey, this, this interface for your podcast mic is useful, I'm going to say, okay, well, Austin knows what he's doing, and so I'm going to trust that. I'm not going to go do my own wire cutter research, or maybe I will, but Oh, like, yeah. I, I think I'm that. totally with you on like the personal one, but like my favorite version of this is like you're at the airport, and you're like walking by the bookstore, you know, and it's like, oh, Brad Pitt's in this book. Like they made a movie of the book yeah, and then yeah. Brad Pitt's made the main character and they put Brad Pitt's photo on the book and you're like, Brad Pitt's not in this book, but like, I guess Brad Pitt's in this book. Actually, to, but to add some nuance, no disrespect to Brad Pitt, I'm, I'm pivoting a little. I think when you're talking about builders, like real techni- yeah. technical builders, social proof does not matter as much. But for example, we just launched an awesome activation of Boba Guys, right? They're offering, you know, discounted Boba here at the Solana NYC office. Us, as the business development team, could go to a fitness brand, for example, a yoga studio, and with a cup of boba and say, hey, Boba Guys is doing this, and this is why you should be doing this, right? It's like the network effects, I think, that we were talking about before. It's not only the logo on the page that my brother's like, cool, I'll spend $90, right? It's, like, it's more so 
we're part of this open ecosystem with Boba guys, with ASICs, that we can take advantage of their loyalty, their customers, their assets, that I think it maybe is a little more nuanced than the discussion that we were previously having about social proof. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's also, now that I think about like the advantage of a lot of these partners, it's like there's a distribution aspect of things, right? Like if Boba Guys is setting up this opportunity for like loyalty programs in their stores, that means that so many more people are going to have access to be able to testing out what this looks like than would have otherwise, right? People are going to understand what that interface looks like. Similarly, like there's there are folks out there, there's a company that's partnered with MoneyGram, right? MoneyGram has deep distribution all over the world. And so if you're able to actually strike that kind of partnership, there's a real business reason to scale, but it also helps introduce so many more people to the blockchain ecosystem. And so there's real value, not just in social proof, but in just the distribution of these big companies. So maybe we're conflating, or maybe we're talking about, we were talking about social proof and now we're talking now about I've, like distribution. Well, now, uh, <laughs> well, now it's distribution. I do think there's a correlation between social proof and distribution, right? For like, sure. Right. For example, when you asked before, right, with these crypto native teams, I don't think they're looking for Web2 partners explicitly. I think they're looking for distribution. They're looking for paying customers, right? So I think the framing for, for these crypto native teams is how can they position their product to the yoga studio, for example, in a way that will you know, get them adopted in a very seamless way and they, they, they don't have to explain how the transaction gets verified or, or how fast it does, right? Yeah, it's interesting because I think the, on the consumer side, there's a real, a real good point there. I guess on the... It's like there's like multiple tiers of qualities of like software companies and startups, right? And I think this is like one of the things people sort of pretend there isn't, but we all know there's like there's like real tech companies, and then there's companies that are somewhere below that, and eventually you get down to like Groupon, right? And like Groupon is like you trying to say about Groupon, Austin? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Groupon is like not Salesforce, and Salesforce is not. You don't have to justify you know, the last statement. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, there's like tiers of companies that do different types of things. And it feels like the further you get away from the technology, the more the social proof matters. And maybe just my bias is the further you get away from the technology, sometimes as an aggregate, but not always, you get less value for actually them doing something with you. But I don't know, because at the end of the day, like Robinhood was just a UX change, right? It was just E-Trade with a nice interface on a phone. Not just that the you know multi-billion dollar company because of that, or at least used to be, but that's interesting. So maybe like a different way to think this through is pivoting a little bit is like there was a there was a stage or an era not that long ago where a bunch of more traditional companies or Web two companies were announcing Web three partnerships, and they hired these like big teams to work on like the metaverse or NFTs or crypto. And now we're seeing just like way less of that. And, you know, a question, Austin and I were talking to someone about this this morning is like, how much of that pullback is just like optical? How much of it is just balance sheets are down? How much of it is they've just straight up lost conviction as the market has changed? Like, you know, when we're seeing, uh, well, we talk about like a Web3 partner, we talk about social proof from the standpoint of a startup working with them. But I guess from the standpoint of a Web2 company, What's happened in the past year? Like, where where have all yeah. them gone? These like people who have such high conviction that work at the Metas and the Googles of the world. Like, where what's going on? They're building Chat GPT and raising two hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah, they're, they they pivoted to AI. Crypto G, yeah, crypto GPT. To generalize what we've been seeing on a day to day basis in terms of our conversations, the number of Web two conversations that we have is still very high. Maybe too high in terms of why Web three and having those chit chats, but I would generalize it as a pivot from B2C activations to B2B. Hmm. We're seeing a lot of Web2 companies interested on how a unified data layer can automate and improve their backend and their operations more so, and which is why Solana is great for this because we also just released account compression. Wait, but can you, I'm really curious, like tell me more. So in as far as you can like give an example, like who is driving this and what, what is making them have the phone call about Web3, especially right now, right? Like, it seems like that's actually like real business conviction yeah. that's emerging. I mean, tactically, we could, we could talk about headcount. Before, you had these giant Web2 teams with dedicated Web3 teams that had 
a massive marketing budget and not much else in terms of technical resources or robust KPIs, right? It's literally a KPI would be go launch one act Web3 activation this year. And now you're seeing a lot of these Web3 activations not come out of a dedicated Web3 team or an innovation team. You're actually seeing it come out of traditional business units, which is really interesting. And who's driving it at those units? Like, how are they coming to the conclusion that I'm interested in some kind of Web3 activation? Well, for example, if you're a Web2 player, JetBlue, for example, announced a partnership with Starbucks a couple months ago. This is completely Web2, but this is an example where you could actually convert some Starbucks points to JetBlue points, for example. And the coordination and the time it took for that partnership to develop, to expose both data layers to each other, to sign all the necessary legal docs, right, just to go through the operational like process, was probably 90% of the, the whole activation. So going back to the social yeah. proof element, they hear about blockchain and they have conversations with their resident degen, and they're less interested about launching a, a 10K PFP collection on OpenSea, but more so about how can we actually make it easier to collaborate with different companies? So if you're JetBlue, you actually can get rid of the whole operational mess and privacy concerns and exposing different databases if you just use a blockchain or Solana to essentially partner with an external party, right? And, and those so, are the phone calls that you're seeing now is like companies actually calling and saying, hey, we want to abstract where data layer and yeah, put it and, on a shared blockchain. And, and, part of, and part of why that is happening is because of a fundamental shift in technology. Before we had, you know, PFPs on, on Ethereum. Now we're having high throughput chains like Solana offer technology like state compression that essentially allows you to mint a million NFTs for you know, $110, right? You could put a whole social network on chain for that amount. You could put every single like, every single comment, every single reaction, every single friend request on chain. So we were stuck, I think, for a while on what was possible. So I think we were limited to the B2C side in terms of these 10K drops on OpenSea because that's what was only really possible in the minds of these corporations. Yeah, I think there's there's a little more going on too on the switch from B2C to B2B. And that's that like in the wider world of consumer technology in general, advertising rates are absolutely catering. So the amount you used to be able to get for a podcast ad is half of what it was this time last year. Impression and display ads are way down too. So all of these businesses that are like Web2 social networks, stuff like Instagram, where Instagram's model is that they sell you ads, right? Famously, Senator, we sell ads. Uh, and the Web3 integration of why would I want to put NFTs on Instagram is less of a product reason about why I would want to put NFTs on Instagram and more of an eyeballs reason. That like, yes, maybe in the future, Meta figures out some way to do monetization with NFTs or some interesting product expansion, but Fundamentally, they want more of your eyeballs on Instagram so they can sell you more ads. And as the ad-based revenue incentive decreases, and quite frankly, there's a little bit less consumer interest in blockchain than there was maybe this time last year, you're, you're kind of in this spiral where like Instagram killed their Web3 integration and laid off a bunch of that team. Disney did the same thing with their Metaverse team because they're looking for areas they can either solve a business use case or they can generate revenue. And the B2B stuff always has to solve one of those two things because no one does anything B2B for the attention. Yeah. I wanna, I wanna, you made a really interesting uh, comment in the form of a question before, in the sense that you said, are these companies agreeing to put you know, their whole database on chain? And I wanted to touch on that because there is a lot of game theory going on there in terms of a company agreeing to put you know, all of their loyalty points on chain and then seeing hypothetically an outflow of their loyalty and you know kind of on-chain rewards, right? So we always have to have that conversation in terms of sorry, just to just to make sure I understand, JetBlue doesn't want to put their entire loyalty program on chain because they're afraid that people will just be like trade the screw, points. Screw JetBlue, like let me. You can yeah, work you, with you else. as you can monetize the points. You could go okay, I'm going to pay for all my coffees. 
for the rest of the year using JetBlue points, and that leaves the so ecosystem. It's not that people are afraid of the reputational risk of putting their points on chain. It's because they're afraid Correct. of the interoperability benefits yes. of putting these things on yes. chain. Yeah, which is like the, the thing that, like, you know, if you roll back, like, 20 years, people were selling World of Warcraft gold on eBay. And that was, like, a system where, like, Blizzard lost control of their in-game economy. And I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Pedro, I think a lot of these Web2 companies that have rewards programs are terrified of what happens if you sort of take the centralized control of like the points economy away. Like American Express is like very tight controls over what you can and what you can't redeem points for and like what the redemption rate is at various places. And if you open that up to market forces, it, who knows what happens? So from, from our perspective, we... We see it as it's not it's not a binary choice again. It's not like yeah. open the floodgates, right? ASICs, for example, or, or Boba Guys. You could be very selective of what products and you know how much you you kind of leave you leave your ecosystem and is interoperable. But at the same time, we do want to stress that it is a positive sum game here. Mm -hmm. The point of putting things on chain is that it's tokenized, so value can you know, value can accrue and be acknowledged in a correct manner. Right. So people can actually use their points and will shop more. And that's better for the user. And that's also better for the corporation. But you're talking. So just so I understand, you're talking specifically about loyalty programs. So when you're saying like B2B conversations, are most of them specific to loyalty programs or is JetBlue calling and being like, hey, like we're thinking about putting personal data on chain or our plane routing or, or whatever yeah, it is? It, it's not just it's not just loyalty. Right. Right. It's also very interesting. It's everything to do, for example, from the manufacturing side, being able to manage a very complex, the, the, the famous supply chain, right? Right, uh, right, right. Blockchain application. What I'm hearing is like what's old is new again. It's like what made blockchain so interesting in 2017 when there was like the first big wave of like putting supply chain on chain and we're like creating had a creating sort of B2B travel systems that save efficiencies on the back end. Like all those sort of B2B use cases that I think people were making fun of last year are sort of back in vogue and the thing that we think actually might be the next wave of this technology. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's like ticketing is another one that everyone would make fun of. I feel like it's inversely correlated with, you know, bull and bear markets, right? People are looking for, again, it goes back to like the B2B side where I think most B2B use cases were made fun of during the bull. And now that's all that any any Web2 company can actually talk about. Yeah, and there's so many real... I mean, this goes back to like the real problems piece. So like the most classic example of a Web2 company embracing Web3 is Google and Amazon and Azure launching like RPC servers as backend services on these, these technologies. This is like, you know, Google's like, look, we provide servers for people to run their Oracle databases. Why not their blockchain databases? And that like those sorts of things, it's just like a TAM thing where they're like, we can make more money by doing the thing that people want. So let's just do the thing that people want. And then there's like the, the use case ones, like every Monday morning at like 9 a.m. when the wire transfers open, like billions of dollars rush in to fill accounts from transactions that haven't settled over the weekend. And like, that's a very solvable problem with USDC on a blockchain. Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember... The scale that we're trying to build for it, it's completely different yeah. than what Web two is. Web two is trying to solve for. For example, I remember in in April, I think April of twenty twenty one, where a candy machine mint got botted, when it was I think it was three million transactions per second. Oh, Someone yeah. tried to bot it. Three million transactions per second is the total number of transactions or or trades that a a tradfi trading floor processes in a whole day. So someone submitted 3 million transactions in a single second, right? So when we talk about these, I think, these problems and these concepts, I think it's clear that we're building for a much different future than a, a 10K PFP drop. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now.
So, okay, I want to touch on something you were talking about, which is like the idea of a bank opening up and like millions of dollars of transactions or billions of dollars of transactions being let go sort of at 9 a.m. on a Monday. Because, um, Pedro, you have, you have sort of an interesting background. I found out earlier this week that your previous employer was SVB. And I'm just, you know, what you were telling me is SVB sort of is what galvanized your interest in blockchain again or, or made you see just how inefficient the financial system is. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what did you actually see there that made you feel like blockchain could be useful? Yeah, so for, for context, I was before SVB at, at Consensus working on payment infrastructure, and I had a problem that I didn't really know what I was trying to solve. I didn't really know how bad incumbent TradFi systems were. So that's part of the reason why I actually wanted to join Silicon Valley Bank was on their venture debt side. So essentially, companies that recently raised around and wanted access to more liquidity, they can essentially underwrite to the most recent raise and get uh, you know, a debt facility from that. Um, at the time, you know, SVB was <laughs> pioneered that and everyone mm -hmm. and their mother from JP Morgan wanted to do it. But in that process, I would say 30% of my day was actually making sure that the, the payments would go through. So making sure that the, the startups actually received their money, for example. And we would be using these systems that were, I don't even know how to describe it. It was designed in like the 1970s where it was such a manual process to make sure that one documentation for this debt facility was actually processed by legal, processed by operations, that you know the startup's legal department got it. And two, that's not even taking into account the actual flow of funds, right, in terms of you know, confirming that this is the actual recipient of the funds that KYC, every single, you know, core team of the startup, right? I, I, I would say that dictated and that was a very unproductive use of not only my time, but so many of my team members across the bank. And that's when I realized that these are, these are you know, real people trying to run a business, feed their families, right? And the process of paying out a pretty straightforward you know, facility that sometimes was, you know, maybe half a million dollars, which at the time for SVB wasn't a ton of cash. I saw its impact on businesses that needed money, that needed money to scale, um, that needed it really fast. But why did it take so long? I think part of it is the regulatory issues that you might have more insights on. But another part of it is just it's so ingrained in the bank culture, right? In terms of the tech providers that they utilize, the processes that they have. And SVB is a place, you know, contrary to other banks, it was actually still growing and growing. So any chain at the institutional level, especially with the tech stack, was a huge no-no. They didn't want to risk anything. They were trying to be, you know, a, a Big Ten bank at the time. So they'd rather have this archaic process. They'd rather hire a whole ops team, a headcount of hundreds of people to deal with this really slow process than to actually make a fundamental change that could potentially break the whole process. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I think the counter from policymakers is there's a reason there's a lot of regulation in the banking system, right? There's a reason that it's very slow. There's a reason it's methodical. And it's because half a million bucks, like that might not be much to SVB, but it's a lot of money to these entrepreneurs. And so these mechanisms are in place to be able to make sure that that system continues to operate appropriately and you want to make sure legal signed off and you want to make sure operations signed off and you want to make sure Pedro's there sort of with the phone on the other end that's, you know, and he's in touch with the entrepreneur to make sure they're like sending us the right routing number or whatever it is. And so, you know, I, oh, look, obviously I am where I am. So I, I think there's change to be built, but I'm curious like how you would how you would counter that, I right? Like, say, where where yeah. are the points where like actually regulation is useful or those I, systems are useful? Definitely from from a KYC AML perspective, definitely there are fundamental regulations that have to be put in place for for money transferring businesses. But at the same time, the work that we were the work that I that I was doing was more so um, writing up the same information over and over again, proving that uh -huh. hey, okay, this team, for example, this team went to Harvard, so we should give them money, and it's okay because they graduated from Y Combinator, right? It wasn't like an ops perspective of triple checking the routing number. It was more so having to write these deal memos over and over again for, for a managing director, then a credit risk officer, then the lawyers, then the ops team, right? So I think, I, I think on the, again, we're, we're talking about like 
B2B and how blockchain can solve these processes. I think any aspect where you have these, this coordination, interdepartmental coordinations, not even from the regulatory perspective, is somewhere that even, even a blockchain might, might be able to help in that case. So I don't have issue with the regulations at all. I think it's more so the culture of these places uh, essentially institutes a drag on like how capital is super filled with friction. Yeah, I think it's even worse than that, though, because like some of this seems to be like obfuscation for the sake of obfuscation. Like, so I have two examples. One is like getting a mortgage. The number of times I got the exact same question asked by the same person at the bank about the same exact thing was probably five. Like, I would have to send the same document through five or six times be like what was this like transfer into your account from and they also never checked it it was just like oh this is a transfer from another yeah. one of my accounts into this account to like pay this down payment and they'd be like oh okay cool there was no like give me your statement history from that other bank to actually make sure this flow of funds didn't come from like some uranium i sold or something and so like a lot of that just seems like it's like it's it's a monopoly protection through paperwork and the other counterpoint is 2008 2009 where all of this stuff didn't actually prevent massive fraud being perpetrated on the mortgage industry and crashing the global economy i think it'd be much easier for regulators who actually audit this stuff if it was actually on technology that had signature verifications and hash verifications and like all of this modern technology to actually say that even like this document has been ingested by our system it is now hashed and stored on our weave, and we know that signature is permanently linked to it. And the banks can't do the thing that they did, where they like printed a bunch of paperwork after the fact two years later in a warehouse in Alabama, when people were like, "Hey, show us your origination paperwork for these loans, or else we're going to stop paying them." Yeah, when I first started getting interested in central bank digital currencies, a lot of the pushback from not even the crypto side of the aisle, but no one was really happy about CBDCs in like 2017. <laughs> even even TradFi folks were essentially saying, hey, this is a this is a Trojan horse for for Bitcoin and digital currencies and those facilitate, you know, drug trafficking and whatnot. And then I would consistently bring up the ample evidence that we have from Chainalysis, from TRM mm -hmm. Labs, that when you look at the rates of fraud and illegal activity happening, it's around 0 0.2 to 0.5% of all crypto transactions compared to 5% of all fiat transactions. And there's the a reason- Is that serious? 5% yeah, of all fiat transactions yeah, it's, are- it's, it's a, a chain analysis, chain analysis uh, report. There's a reason why the $100 bill is the most popular bill in the world. Yeah, like how many times in your life have you ever genuinely used a $100 bill? Is it one in 100 of the bills you touch? One in 1,000 of the bills you touch? Well, apparently it's five out of every hundred exactly. dollars. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Like, but it's the most popular unit of currency because it fits in a duffel bag very well. I, I, yes. Pedro I'll, I'll is nodding. That, that, that is why <laughs> the answer to this is a central bank digital currency. Okay. Well, so let's hear the pitch. So the pitch, the, the additional context is in 2017, I wrote a paper essentially saying that the Fed should institute a helicopter money program, actually. So actually, a direct... What is helicopter money? Helicopter money is essentially... Pedro in a helicopter. Is where... Is this one of those uh, stimulus programs? Yes, but it comes from a central bank, uh -huh. and it's constitutionally devious. I was making uh, a joke. Yeah. yeah. I actually, I, tell me more. Helicopter money is it's like an economic concept that the central bank has the legal authority to, to airdrop and to, to conduct uh, fiscal stimulus, essentially mm -hmm. give money to the American economy. Uh, why is CBDC in this case is for traceability. And this is the controversial part where essentially with the CBDC, you could accurately target the households and people that receive a stimulus package. So when you look at the history of economic stimulus, actually, most famously, you know, COVID, where everyone got a stimulus package. And again, my friend Mo's in the audience, and he literally just went and bought Tesla stock and Bitcoin. People don't use the money appropriately because it's not traceable. So with a CBDC attached to kind of a helicopter money style, you can say, hey, if you make X amount of income or below, you, you're eligible for this. Or hey, if you're on this welfare program, you're eligible for this, which is nothing new, but the traceability happens when they spend it, 
right? So you can actually see that the money has left their account to an eligible or an ineligible wallet. So, but how is that different from like an EBT card, which so, also has the same kind of purchase protections so on it? You could you could, can establish parameters for the second wallet that receives it and the third wallet. Okay. So in my my thesis was that in a hypothetical deflationary scenario, the United States government could issue a CBDC where you have X amount of days to spend it. And then, for example, you, Austin, are given $1,000. You give it to me. I have 30 days to spend it. That's the traceability part. I spend it and I give it to Mira. I can actually change the parameters and say, okay, every single transaction, the amount of days to spend the money goes down by two days, right? So, Amira, you have 28 days to spend it. You give it to someone else, it's 26, right? So, I'm encouraging and manipulating the velocity of money. It provides for much more precise Correct. monetary policy. Correct. From but an economic standpoint. But could you imagine standpoint. getting a paycheck and being told a quarter of this, you have to spend the next 30 Totally. <laughs> totally. It'd pump the GDP. Exactly. So Which by is the point, I guess. Yeah. yeah, by increasing the velocity of money. Japan is suffering from this tremendously. For example, they're in a huge deflationary spiral. So by manipulating that, you could essentially get an increase in economic output. Right. And the reverse would work, too. Like if you spent the money within 30 days, you have to pay an additional 15% as a way to reduce inflation. So the the Austrians did this in like the, the early like 13 or, or 1400s where they essentially put a tax on, on payments. So they actually promoted people keeping money by essentially saying, hey, I, I pay you. I, you actually have to stamp it. And the amount of stamps on an Austrian bill devalues the currency more. So you could do this with crypto, right? With NFTs, for example, not even in the CBDC context because of the traceability standpoint and the provenance. So would you actually advocate for this? I think in the current political environment, where money has been weaponized, I would say. I'm, I'm a little hesitant. It depends if, if it was truly an independent central bank action versus you know, Congress or, or another political entity essentially establishing this. But I, I do think that given where the money supply is right now, I think we do need more precise monetary policy and a CBDC is a way for us to actually get there more efficiently. Yeah. So the, the counter to this, of course, is the privacy considerations, right? So we see in China the EUAN being rolled out and it is sort of the latest extension of the surveillance state. Uh, it's, you know, it's money can only be used for certain things. Like there's like money that's like transportation specific. It is like highly monitoring people's transactions. And what the government is doing is increasingly pushing people towards spending exclusively EUANs so that they can have more of a sense of what people are spending money on. And so it's it increases sort of the surveillance mechanisms yeah. of the regime, right? It's like very Foucault. Yeah, it's interesting because I think I'm trying to reconcile that with the point that part of the reason why I got into crypto is I believe money, a capital should be frictionless, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I don't believe there should be limitations to how, how you spend and you interact with their assets, NFTs included. But I do think in my mind, it's very narrow. If you relieve a stimulus, there should be kind of like stipulations, on that, independent of the traditional money supply of like the paycheck you receive, which is a very narrow line. Like so, you're, you're like only the central bank should be able to limit sort of the stipulations of a stimulus. If it is through a CBDC, correct? Yeah. Right. This shouldn't be a power extended to like my employer, for example. Correct. Absolutely right. not. So I guess the counter, there's a few counter points I would say to that. One is like, I think the most effective international aid is just direct cash assistance yes. where there's no stipulations. Like when, when aid organizations try and guess what people in low income countries need, they'll often get that wrong. There's a logistics problem of like if they need X or Y or Z, how do we physically get that to the country? Whereas like direct cash infusions, I think if it's been pretty proven at this point are like a very effective way to solve problems in systems where there's like below a certain level of corruption. And so I guess it's like, so one of the things I would say is like, I want to test the thesis of whether the CBDC would actually know, quote unquote, how the money should be spent. Because what, what I see right now is in like largely in our sort of various welfare programs, the cost of means testing is like 10 times the cost of fraud. And that we spend way more money making sure people are eligible 
then actually the slippage rate, for, to use blockchain terms, is much lower than the compliance rate. So part of the reason why I want, I'm advocating for a CBDC is actually because of that direct transfer literature. And the, the nuance there is that most literature has been done in lower income yes. places, right? My thesis is that you can take into account the, someone's marginal propensity to consume. Like everyone in this room has a rate in that they're going to spend a portion of their paycheck. On JPEGs. On JPEGs, mostly. So like the lower yeah, your income BJ, rate, yeah. the lower the lower your income rate, like the higher your marginal propensity to consume is. So the higher rate in that you actually, you're going to spend more of your your income, right? So that's why I wanted to target you know, middle and lower class yeah, mm-hmm. income households. Because yeah. essentially they, they spend money. They don't, they don't spend it on you know, JPEGs, Tesla stock, Bitcoin, right? You know, to the data tracking point, one of the things I think the last maybe, let's call it six years, has really shown us is how much of these like protections we have are norm based or at least judge enforced based. And that, like, if you're actually talking about what the surveillance potential is of a CBDC versus like the existing financial industry, with enough subpoena power, we basically have that now from a data collection standpoint. That like, if if I'm going to be honest, anywhere between ninety nine and ninety nine point nine percent of my transactions are not cash. There's a digital record of that somewhere, whether it's Amex or a bank transfer or something along Venmo or something along those lines. And I wonder how much of the CBDC fear from a privacy standpoint in a country like the United States is us being worried about something that we're actually already 20 years into. Well, there's, I mean, the subpoena power is the difference between that. Totally. And but you could put a CBDC China, right? behind a subpoena. Yeah. 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 So if we could build a CBDC. I mean, you're the expert, Pedro, but like we could build a CBDC so that's not tracking people's individual transactions, right? So that, it, you know, it's solely tied to time to spend or, or whatever we think like the two or three maybe parameters are that might make it. Uh, make it possible to advance this objective of precise monetary theory. Um, But, you know, the difference between that and, you know, the government knowing everything that we do is is pretty stark, right? And this is why when we talk about, say, something like TikTok having all our data versus Facebook having all our data, like these are fundamentally different things because the Chinese government doesn't need to subpoena TikTok and take that order to a judge to get the data. They just call up TikTok and have a, a two-way stream, right? So these are substantively different things from a constitutional perspective of, of how our data is protected in the United States and why why there's a difference between this and, you know, Amex having all your information. Amex isn't proactively checking your credit card statement um, right. and, like, actively flagging stuff for the U.S. government. Whereas, Unless, like, like, for very narrow use cases, like when you buy uranium, like totally. you might be doing that. Yeah. Whereas, like, the Chinese government knows that I really like capybaras. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk about how there's this discrepancy between what crypto Twitter talks about and what Washington talks about when it comes to crypto. I think, like, there's definitely a contrast between the issues that policymakers are concerned about. And then you open up your phone, you go to Twitter, and it's a whole different universe there. Yeah. I mean, I think I have so many thoughts about this. Like, there's such a failure of engagement because I think a lot of people, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, like, if you're a staffer on the Hill or a congressperson, you're you're reading Twitter, right? And a lot of the language that's coming out in crypto Twitter is not constructive. And the instinct is to read that and say like, all right, well, screw these people. <laughs> they, they don't seem to be like, you know, helpful at engaging or be charitable towards my decisions. Like I'm just trying to do what's best. And so, you know, when it comes to crypto Twitter, you know, folks in the industry really need to realize that what they're saying is public and read by the people who's making this legislation, right? Like they're seeing what's out there and it's, oftentimes not super helpful towards helping come to some kind of reasonable conclusions about what the law should be. But but to your point, which is like, what's the gap of like what people on crypto Twitter talk about versus what people on the Hill talk about? Like one of them is like, I would say, I don't know, somewhere between 25 and 50% of like Democrats in particular when they're talking about like blockchain and Web3 policy, it's about CBDC. Whereas like crypto Twitter is like, 1% CBDC, if that, right? Like there's such a gap in what people are paying attention to. Like the the places where people think the industry is going just couldn't be more different in some respects. Yeah, which is so sad because like 
I don't know, if you're one of those people, I think many of us in this community are, who are like, these big tech companies have a little bit too much power in our lives. Like, we've seen 15 years of companies trying to compete with them and either failing or getting acquired. And, like, the place where you can see a glimmer of hope, I think, is crypto. And that, like, the way it's built on a totally new technology stack where, you you know, all the stuff we talked about about inefficiencies at somewhere like SVB or mortgage issuing or whatever it might be, like, yeah, mortgage is on a blockchain problem. You know, there's, there's lots of problems with that as an idea. Um, but, like, other types of financial transactions, social media sites, like places for art to be bought and sold, all these types of things, it feels like crypto is the one thing that started to maybe crack the big tech monopoly scene, besides Amy Klobuchar. I'm always super interested when I... When I open up Politico's tech section and see the op-eds being written about crypto and the partisan differences, like the what one political party cares about um, regarding crypto is different than the other side. And it's always fascinating to me how different ideologies are applied to crypto on the Hill because it doesn't seem super consistent with each side's framework. Where I think, you know, when I originally got into crypto, I thought it was a super progressive idea. Like super, I thought it was something that was going to be embraced by progressives and and the left in terms of democratizing access to financial and and social opportunities. And that was like, that was the opposite (laughs) of what happened. I think a lot of us feel that way and like are a little stunted by it. Uh, So I was at this summit last week called DAOs at Harvard, which is basically this like researcher at Harvard that's doing DAO policy. And it was basically like a bunch of like super crunchy progressives talking about like essentially digital cooperatives and how DAOs could, you know, better help uh, share power and like create these sort of new organizational structures. Awesome. I, I see you're smiling a lot more. But uh, it was it was really cool. And it was the opposite of what you see in D.C. And I think, you know, what actually drew me to the space was much more, uh, I think, philosophically tied to what I saw at that summit than maybe some of the op-eds that you see in Politico. And so, you know, I think one of the things that we're really missing in this conversation is stuff like what Austin's saying, which is like how Web3 can be used as a counterbalance to some of these sort of big monopolies that have really taken over. I'm internet. just imagining You're a, thinking a, a digital DAO cooperative in rural Vermont and everyone, all the crunchy people just congregating. Bending, Bennington DAO. Oh, yeah, a lot of them are from Colorado. Colorado has great yeah. cooperative law, apparently. Yeah. Um, but but they're like doing really cool stuff. So there's a company out there that, you know, they started off basically as a food delivery cooperative with the thesis of saying like DoorDash and Uber Eats, they take super high cuts from like every restaurant. What if we created the same thing but let made it restaurant owned so the restaurants actually profited off of what was made through this delivery, right? And they started it out of Colorado in a single town and they've reached a GMV of $10 million. So it's like not nothing to sneeze at. And they want to scale, but they realize the way to scale is to do this on the blockchain. It's just way more easy than, you know, doing the calculations for the co-op every day or every week. Um, It makes it easier to move to jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Like it's just a technologically smarter way to be able to build this technology. But the big barrier is regulation. Yeah, it's super interesting. I presented last spring at a pretty progressive college campus and talked about step-in, tokenizing carbon credits, just public good, crypto use cases on Solana. And the immediate, like the consensus in the crowd was, this is the financialization of everything. This, like, this is the financialization of everything, which is super interesting because my counterpoint was everything is already financialized, you know, top down, right? Like crypto, and and I tried to, the, the counterpoint to that from crypto's perspective is we're trying to, we're trying to flip it. You know, we're trying to do bottoms up. But it's oh, super yeah. interesting that from a progressive perspective, they th- that camp still views it as as top down in terms of them being financialized in a more, you know, personal perspective. I think this is sort of like you either look at crypto and you're like, this is the truest expression of neoliberal capitalism run amok, or this is the truest expression of community oriented cooperative ownership of businesses that I've ever seen in my life. And like, I think this is one of those situations where like you go far enough left, you turn right, and you go far enough right, you turn left. And like crypto kind of, it exists on the bottom end of that pendulum where like 
some projects are built in ways that are more libertarian. Some projects are built in ways that are like super democratic cooperative. And there is this resistance. I mean, I, I see this all the time from like friends I know who are like more left leaning where they're sort of like, it can't be this good, though. Like there must be a catch here where someone is taking a 30 percent cut in the payday loan business. Right. Yeah. Like there's a, the refusal to believe that it's possible to build better economic systems on blockchain, because what they've seen for most of their lives is that most of these sort of reform minded policies end up not having the effects that people hope they make. And so they sort of see blockchain as either something that's going to inevitably be corrupted or already is. And we're just not seeing where that is. Well, to me, feel, you know, technology is a tool and yeah. tools are what humans make them. And so, you know, Crypto is like a Rorschach test for how you want to see the world yeah. and you know, people react to it. And so the reason it's exciting is I think it gives us more tools to be able to help create a more level playing field, just like the internet did. But, but we also have to note to the fact that like there have been a lot of scams in crypto and there is a lot of illicit activity and we can do something about you know, trying to yeah. help mitigate that or at least like be honest about what's been happening in the space. It doesn't have to be our fault. Yeah. I don't no. think it's our fault. It's, uh, it's <laughs> the best thing we can do is like to be honest about where things need improvement and to celebrate successes and sort of advocate for this sort of responsible usage of blockchain. It's really interesting. It, that's a really particular way of saying, you know, technology is just an expression of culture. You know, like the Google uh, slogan of don't be evil. I think crypto, what we're trying to get to is develop systems that can't be evil, right? That is, you know, anti-gamified or that can't be susceptible to these extractive intermediaries. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.